Hello, this is Brandon Boat, and you are listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. The show today comes from a taping that we did at the Bryant Lake Bowl for our 10th season. We were talking about affordable housing, and we had three great guests. We had on Nalima Satati, who is the Executive Director of African Career Education and Resource. Also, Owen Duckworth, a coalition organizer for the Alliance for Metropolitan Stability. And finally, Ed Getz, the Director of the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. The affordable housing situation in the Twin Cities has been called one of the fiercest debates like it in the country because there are a lot of different viewpoints that are clashing and having trouble even defining what we mean on different terms and trying to find a housing policy that both benefits the region, the people, and doing it in a way that's equitable. In fact, uh, we usually reach out to lots of different organizations when we're doing these shows because we think it's of their interest to come and hear the ideas that are talked about. And one organization got back to me and said that they would uh, help us do outreach uh, by sending it to their email lists and newsletters and all that. But they demanded that they get two spots on the panel to be interviewed, which uh, we don't normally do that. Um, and it's also a bit rude, you know, if you're inviting someone to come to an event and they demand to be the guests of honor for not one but two different people. That's kind of a little unusual. But it, I think, goes to show how impassioned people are about this issue. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, very contentious, but I think we did a good job with it. So I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Oh, okay. So, uh, so I should also say we're extremely excited this evening. Uh, at every show this season, we have a different artist who's in the audience. Uh, maybe some of you saw uh, when you walked in the watercolor that we had from last week when we had Lieutenant Governor Smith. Uh, tonight, uh, David Witt is here and is uh, live, live capturing everything on stage. So, uh, and we will display what he's created at the end of the night. So, thank, uh, thank you all so much for being here. This is. Um, uh, this is the show that, honestly, of we've been doing the show since 2011. This has gotten more attention and uh, sort of interest than any show we've ever done. People are very excited to hear from you all. So, uh, good job. Uh, so, but okay. So, I want to start with a very sort of simple, basic question, which is: We're here to talk about housing policy. Uh, so, really? Yes. Woo. Um, why? Why? Uh, why? have housing policy at all. Like, you can imagine an alien coming from another planet and saying, oh, well, you know, why don't people just sort of, why don't uh, people decide where they want to build themselves? Why do we need to have government or anybody decide any of these things? So, so just uh, to set the stage, why, why bother even, why, maybe, maybe this is just an existential dread kind of question that I have. Maybe my Humphrey degree just is not worth it. Um, so talk me out of it. Your Humphrey degree should have told you that uh, we have public policy where the market fails. And the market fails in, in producing uh, housing in a number of different ways. We don't have enough affordable housing. We don't have enough uh, high quality housing. We sometimes don't have the right housing in the right place. So we have housing policy. That was easy. Okay, good. I'm going to move on. Uh, so... Okay, so let's just talk about the, we know we need to have housing policy. So what's, what's the problem, I guess? That's a very sort of Humphrey School kind of question. I mean, if we were to try and encapsulate sort of uh, what is working or what is not working when we talk generally about housing policy, uh, even specifically here in Minnesota or, or larger than that? Um, well, a big part of the problem is 
I guess, you know, there's no balance that is supposed to exist, you know. So even though there are policies in place, I think uh, our, you know, I think our history teaches us that even though policy is supposed to rectify some of these problems, unfortunately, uh, sometimes historically, especially in the United States, policy has been a part of that problem. The policy and practice has been a part of... uh, has been a part of creating the problem. Well, we should say, I mean, I, I think going into a little bit of that history is probably very valid, and I'm sure we'll produce amazing comedy. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but I mean, in all seriousness, we uh, have... Uh, we have a long history of using housing policy to do things that are not probably simply about trying to correct market errors, but are social engineering. Um, well, I was I was going to say, with the, if you if you have to um, define the problem in one word, I think in a lot of our work is 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 racism. I mean, that's that's basically where I would what I would start was that um, as a lot of other systems in this country, um, housing has been a, has been a tool. For instance, has been one of the primary wealth building tools, right, for families uh, for communities in this in this country. Um, and historically, certain communities, uh, namely people of color, have been cut out from a lot of access to to either government loans or to certain communities, um, so or, or or good loans as well. So I think a lot of what what a, in our work we sort of start with is is an understanding for um, how how s- systems have failed to produce housing in a way that is equitable, right? And and that's thus the need for for adjustments in public policy, right? And having conversations like this, so. So, uh, follow-up question. How do we create housing that is equitable? <laughs> Just real quick. Sure, uh, yeah. If we can, yeah. like, lightning round this. Uh... <laughs> well, I think, I, I, think, I think, in my perspective, um, I think, uh, as Owen mentioned, it, because housing, has, uh, housing is such an important asset, commodity, whatever you, know, you, you, you want to call it, that um, so the issues that surround housing are important. So creating uh, housing that is equitable is housing that is accessible, you know, for all people. The color of your skin should not be a precursor of what kind of housing you're going to get, where you're going to live, and what is going to be around the housing. Because it's not just enough to create housing; it's also what follows the housing. What uh, you know is there public investment that follows private investment? Are there amenities, good schools around, etc. So this is a great uh, place to maybe jump into how some of this stuff plays out. So uh, uh, when we're talking about affordable housing in particular, right, there's both sort of naturally occurring affordable housing, uh, homes that are just affordable because they are based on the market, and then there's uh, subsidized housing. And so maybe to start with talking a little bit about the subsidized part of the housing or the uh, pieces where the government or community organizations play some sort of role. Uh, can you talk just us through a little bit on sort of what the strategy or what the, the tactics in, in trying to make some of those in different communities, particularly here within the Twin Cities, are? Well, okay, so the, uh, the, the approaches we use are to either subsidize the unit itself by uh, giving developers a, a break on the financing so any um, so it costs less to build the housing, and then they pass on that savings to the people who live there. 
and we do that in many different ways or we subsidize families directly through vouchers uh, which uh, they can use in the marketplace and it's a it's a direct supplement to uh, uh, and, and they use to supplement their rent payments so they um, they access the private uh, market so those are the two basic ways we do so it. and historically again kind of going back to some of the social engineering piece uh, there's been a long complaint that we have uh, you know we have created uh, communities that are poor uh, basically that are centralized uh, focuses of that and so I, I kind of wanted to ferret out a little bit and talk through uh, both the history of that and then where we are with that now in terms of uh, is it that we're creating specific affordable housing communities or is it that we're moving more towards a, a system where we have uh, vouchers for people to go to different places um, don't all jump at sure. once yeah um, <laughs> Well, I mean, again, I think the, the importance of history is, is, is worthwhile. Again, the, the, the legacy of um, of sort of, um, especially as you had, I mean, take take Minneapolis and St. Paul, especially you had um, African Americans moving, great migration taking place moving into Minneapolis and St. Paul. You had um, certainly, again, racial, a combination of racial covenants, um, <clears throat> racial steering, uh, lack of access to, to loans and houses in certain neighborhoods, et cetera, so that, that that created segregated living patterns, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think the, um, you know, the, so there was, again, a set of both public and private sector decisions that, that led to yeah. the, the creation of our landscape and then combined with, again, we can't mention, we can't have these conversations without mentioning freeway infrastructure or the transportation infrastructure, right? So you yeah. have a Rondo, historic black community in, in Rondo and St. Paul that was had a freeway built through, right? Or the sectioning off of North Minneapolis, if you think about it, with 394, 55, 94. So... So those combinations. So I guess the, the role of planning historically in these things um, absolutely is is a, is a key role to how how the geography of our region. Yeah, but I think it's also important to say that um, maybe our housing policy has created concentrations of lower income people in concentrations of subsidized housing, but we've also created through our public policy concentrations of white affluence as well. So our, our housing policy extends beyond the kinds of subsidies that I was talking about to tax uh, policy. Uh, our largest ho uh, housing program in the United States is the mortgage interest deduction. That goes predominantly to uh, affluent families, not to uh, low-income people. And we have a, a series of local zoning and regulatory um, policies that create exclusionary uh, communities as well. So um, it's not a complete picture to talk about housing policy as affecting just one portion right. of the of Can the you market. say more about the the piece of zoning and, and particularly how that creates some of these, uh, you know, uh, communities of wealth, I guess you would say, and how it kind of almost segregates them off from uh, the rest of society? Well, we have a tradition of, of local uh, powers of land use in the United States. So local governments have the power to decide for themselves what uh, land should be used for, and they create very specific and very detailed zoning kinds of uh, policies, which really prescribe very specifically what kind of structure, what the use of the structure will be, how large it will be, how many garages, uh, uh, spaces uh, per unit. And so those can be easily manipulated to drive up the per unit cost of housing. Mm -hmm. And as, if, you, if you do that well enough, then you uh, essentially uh, price out uh, an entire uh, range of housing from your community, and that's how you create uh, class exclusivity. What if we just got rid of all zoning? <laughs> <laughs> then you'd have Houston. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
the only large city without uh, any zoning. I've never been to Houston. Uh, is it is it nice? It's, uh, it's, it's beautiful. You should go. Um, there are plenty of uh, 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 there are plenty of uh, uh, rational and reasonable objectives that are met through zoning, um, but but zoning. Uh, can be used uh, also to create exclusive communities. So, um, so one of the things that I find so interesting in this interplay between uh, government and and communities and whatnot is that housing uh, or uh, planning policy in general is something that uh, is is sort of such a, a a blunt tool, whether it's for good or bad. It seems like in a lot of cases. So later this season, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have um, uh, James Schiffer on, who just wrote a new book about the history of Skid Row in Minneapolis. And that was a case where, and I'm previewing this show, we had here in Minneapolis uh, a part of downtown that was really uh, a lower income part and uh, was known for sort of just having bars and whatnot. And so the city's response was just to tear it down uh, with very little concern for what happened to any of the people. Um, and so I'm wondering about, is the problem with some of this that, uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to ferret out how much of the problem is that this is just a blunt tool and policymakers don't necessarily realize the unintended consequences and how much is it maybe there are, they know very well what they're doing. Well, I mean, I think definitely there have been some instances where it was, you know, intentional. For example, you know, the history of redlining and et cetera was to intentionally keep segregated uh, communities, you know, to keep... We should say a little bit, just if folks don't know, like... Well, so um, redlining was, a long time ago, there was a policy whereby, you know, banks would draw a map around certain areas and say, we are not going to lend money, you know, in these areas, you know, whatever reason, you know... mostly communities of color, so they were not able to access loans and et cetera, you know, to be able to uh, to purchase a home. So there are instances where the policy has been intentional in creating, um, you know, segregated communities. I mean, we could uh, basically make the same arguments, you know, in some communities where we have specific, you know, zoning codes about, you know, we are only, you can only have a minimum size lot that is probably, you know, like three quarters of an acre when you know your land prices are high, then you're definitely excluding some people who are below a certain income, and that is intentional. Well, there have been some times where the practices have been, you know, an in, where there have been unintended consequences, and I think part of the big problem is a lot of times is who is making these policies? Are the people who are most impacted, you know, at the table? Are, are we asking these people, what would you like to see? Why? Are, I think the right questions are not being asked. Why are people poor to begin with, you know, before we start labeling them, before we start labeling the problem? So we come up with the wrong solutions because we're not asking the right questions and we're not asking the right people. So let me just ask, um, why are people poor? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well I, you know, I think, I think the, the thing, that, the thing that's... that's to, uh, I'll say, I don't know, that, that's, that's a very big response that I don't think I have the... Maybe we have Ed, about Ed, two Ed, Ed, minutes. Ed has, so. the most, Ed has the most policy and, and experience and life experience out of all of us, so um, he, could, he, could, he could maybe answer it better than I could. No, but, but in all seriousness, I, th- I think that there's, I think there's, there's an approach to talking about and thus dealing with poverty that's, right. that I think is, that is a problem, that is too often talked about. And I think Wait, so I, you said a little bit about that before, but tell, sure. just explicitly, what is the problem with the way that we talk about well, it? Well, th- I think it's, it's too often seeing people who are in poverty as being the problem, as opposed yeah. to uh, an analysis which says, well, how has a set of decisions been made by society 
that has excluded them from, from either intentionally or unintentionally from access to wealth, access to transportation, access to good education, um, et cetera, right? So, so I think that's so, – so when we start with an analysis that says we need to correct the behavior of the deviant poor, the deviant <clears> – <throat> deviant concentrations of poverty, yeah. those communities, right? We're starting with the wrong lens because we're assuming that people aren't making rational decisions according to their own set of self-interest and their own expertise in their own day-to-day lives. We're saying we need to correct these people as opposed to we need to correct policy. Yeah. We need to correct how systems interact with these people in these communities. Sure, and just to add real quick, and, and, or you can clap all over. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, and there are instances where we're not, you know, just coming out and saying, how has the system, in some cases, dismantled people's wealth, people yes, of yes. color's wealth? You know, I mean, that is something that has to be, you know, that that has to be said. You know, we can think about the Black Wall Street in the South that nobody ever wants to talk about. You know, the splitting up of the Rondo community. You know, with the building of, you know, Interstate 94. We can talk about the foreclosure in North Minneapolis. Nobody, yeah. everybody wants to talk about the revitalization, but nobody wants to talk about how this community was targeted. Even when you know we were asking you know for for there to be stricter laws around banking and etc, and nobody wants to talk about the hundreds of millions of dollars in black wealth that was lost in North Minneapolis as a result of the foreclosure so I mean even though this is a show about housing policy, it seems like we're uh, we're saying largely here that housing policy is not the answer or is not I don't know I mean how, wh- how does housing policy then even play into solving some of these things well I, I mean I, I think part of what part of what we also I mean right is to, to have a conversation about housing policy um, and, and I mean even the term like you, you mean you see this this reaction right now um, the term affordable housing is a, is, a, is a racially loaded term right I mean there's, there's a, it's, it's a it's a term that's used as a dog whistle in certain places or triggers a dog whistle response in certain communities, really in every community, let's be clear, even even in even in the core cities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's opposition to affordable housing being built in North Minneapolis, right, or in Phillips neighborhood, right? So, so I think there's a um, we we in, in my opinion, is we cannot begin to have a conversation about housing mm-hmm. policy without understanding um, some of the ways, in, the very ways in which we talk about this stuff, right? So yeah. I think I think to be clear, housing policy, yes, it is it is a tool of of undoing. Uh, racial inequalities, racial inequities in in our society, um, but I think that's some of what we're attempting to do here yeah. in terms of in terms of the conversation. Yeah, no, I think that that's good. So I, I want to, and I, I probably, in the second half of the show we open it up to all of you for some questions. But I, I before we get done with this, I, I do want to ask a little bit about that sort of what are some of the ways that we can uh, potentially use housing policy to start addressing some of these things? So is it um, uh, is it simply building more affordable housing? I've def- we've actually had, I think, people on the show in the past talking about other things who uh, have said, you know, affordable housing, the problem is that we just don't have enough housing, period, that we just need to build lots more uh, in the Twin Cities metro region of all kinds. Uh, or is it incentive programs? Or is it giving uh, specific people and specific communities uh, vouchers or pathways to go and and have more choices of their own things yeah. <laughs> uh, we need a lot more affordable housing we have nowhere near the amount of affordable housing that we need whether uh, and 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 getting close to where we uh, need to be is going to have to be a combination of building more housing generally so that you have uh, more uh, action in the private sector and the creation of more naturally occurring affordable housing. But that's not going to get us 
to the uh, to the place we need to be. We need to uh, we we simply need to invest more in uh, in in housing that's affordable. Should so should that be then something like the cities? are mandating that if you're going to build something new, you also have to build some affordable housing? Or should it be incentive programs that if you build it, you get a tax break or both and? Sure, I mean, yeah, the, the idea of inclusionary zoning, yeah. like the idea that, that you know, when, especially if any any city resources, city zoning policies, et cetera, need to be changed, that there should be um, included in that affordable units. I think that's that's absolutely a step. But again, that's, that's I mean, Basically, everything that you've said that Ed said is, is yes, 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 and yes, and then some, right? So I think I think that's that's part of that's part of the challenge, though, as well as there, there is a need for there's so many so much need for housing and so much need for affordable housing. There's lots of ways to do it. Um, uh, there's a couple of things we shouldn't do. Uh, we shouldn't tear down existing affordable housing, and we shouldn't uh, uh, kid ourselves into thinking that uh, if we just give uh, folks vouchers to use on the uh, market uh, that that will, uh, in the end, produce enough of a response by the private sector that, uh, to solve the problem as well. What? Just to I, just to quickly say, why not? Why not? <laughs> why? Well, I, I take it the, the the why not to the first part of it is is obvious. We shouldn't be tearing down existing oh, affordable. Yeah, housing. that makes right. sense. I mean, we don't we don't have enough. So, right, yeah, right, I don't right. uh, so yeah. I got that. Okay. I'm right, almost good. graduated. I'll be there soon. That's good. That's good. Uh, as for the second part, the uh, the the, uh, the 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 market doesn't respond uh, quickly right. enough or uh, or completely enough to those uh, uh, to those signals. So, um, uh, the, it, we have we have a, a hundred year history of the of the private sector uh, not building down to levels that are needed uh, given distributions of income in the United States. So uh, it's going to take uh, a different kind of effort on the part of the public sector. And uh, so the, the last piece of this that I just want to ask is, uh, who, are there folks that we can point to who are doing some of these things right that you feel like, uh, or or sort of uh, positive places? And there's harder stuff that we'll probably jump into in the second half, but I, am, I, I like to try and find uh, rays of hope uh, where I can. So uh, who, who's doing this well, or who's moving in the right direction? Oh, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> please don't leave me hanging. Uh, um, well, I can. Um, I mean, I, I think there's. I think there's. You know, one example. This is. This is. This is actually. The 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 place is a terrible example of, of housing challenges. But the, but the but the policy that's that's so in, in the Bay Area, for instance, right? We know this is one of the one of the most let's say challenged markets in terms of in terms of housing affordability. Right. right. Both San Francisco, especially Oakland, as well. Right. Um, they do have uh, rent control as a measure, which again is insufficient. Entirely to, in order to, you know, stimulate the creation of, of enough affordable housing, but uh, that's a measure that uh, you know I think, you know, and, and again, in, in the problem, part of the problem in Minnesota is that there's actually a statewide ban on municipalities deciding to, to pass rent control measures, right? So that's so anyone who wants to start a statewide campaign to um, to do that, um, that'd be that'd be welcome. Um, but I think that's an example of, of a way that you can sort of protect some some degrees of affordability, and especially you know at the moment where um, there's a couple examples locally of. But one currently taking place a massive loss of about 700 units in Richfield. Yeah. Um, right. So, oh. so a measure, a measure like again talking about preservation methods. Yeah. Um, stuff that would that would protect this sort of quick flipping of properties like that. 
uh, I think is, is, is one example of, of a policy that has been done elsewhere that could be done here and, and, and solve some of the problems that we see existing I, right now. So just to play, so Richfield, there uh, is 700 affordable home uh, building. Mm -hmm. uh, what It was 700 affordable homes called the Crossroads, and now it's being, what, upgraded to, uh, they say, to... Um, concierge. The concierge. The concierge. Yes. Um, which is funny, like a car wreck, sort of. So, um, <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, so we're going to bring our guests back in the second half of the show to answer some of your questions and to jump more into uh, some more of these things. But for right now, can you please do a big round of applause for all three of our guests? Okay, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and... Um, and if I don't know you personally, I will come to you first. Um, I'm not sure if I misheard earlier, but is it true that it's illegal in Minnesota to have rent control? And if so, why? And what would it take to repeal that? And, and we should also explain exactly what rent control is or does. Um, so my understanding is that um, rent control, it's, it's a state statute that says municipalities cannot pass rent control. So I don't know if there's when this was when this was put into law, I don't know if there's any places that previously passed uh, any rent control measures. Um, I was speaking to somebody the other day, however, who was, uh, uh, has a lot more legal expertise than, than I do, who said that apparently you can pass, and I'll, I'll get to, I should define rent control in a second here, um, that if you, uh, municipalities could pass it through a, through a referendum. So if you had, a, say, the city of Minneapolis wanted to pass it, could put it to the residents of Minneapolis and have a, to a vote. So that's my understanding. Um, I, it would have, it would take some type of uh, repeal of that at a state level to do. Uh, rent control, the, the, the loose definition that, that I'm familiar with anyways, and others chime in if you have better ones, but it basically um, would cap the amount that um, a landlord could raise rent from year mm -hmm. to year. Uh, um, I know the measure in, in, in Oakland, for instance, is that uh, as long as a tenant remains in an apartment on a, on a, on a, on a lease. So it would say rent can only go up 2% um, from year to year, something like that. Do we know if rent control, how well it works? I feel like at some point in my, my Humphrey career, I've read something that there's, you know, uh, it has pros and cons. Uh, there are trade-offs, uh, something like that. <laughs> if you're an economist, uh, right. uh, rent control doesn't work almost by definition. And... Um, there was a famous economist who called rent control, uh, or who described it as a nuclear explosion in slow motion. Um, and they argue that it's a complete disincentive to the private sector to build housing. To It, it interferes with the investments necessary to, uh, to keep it uh, of a certain quality, et cetera. Um, but the fact of the matter is that most rent control ordinances allow for a certain amount of increase in rents year to year. It allows for what's called vacancy decontrol, which is when a family moves out, then the uh, landlord can increase uh, beyond the minimums uh, from, for an annual basis. And it uh, turns out uh, not to have that much of a negative impact on, on the development of new affordable, or new housing as well, so. Okay, so there are um, uh, more there's one more hand. Okay. Oh, I'll come over here and then I'll go over there. Okay, right here. Yes. Oh, hi. Hi, James. Uh, so I have a question. It, can you talk about the politics of integration that exists in our region right now? Thank you. <laughs> Just real quick. Uh, 
Well, uh, where to start? Well, I think um, I, I think the politics of integration that exists in our region, I think there's this theory that, you know, there's a problem, you know, with, uh, you know, as Owen alluded to earlier, you know, about poor people being, you know, described as a problem, you know, there's a problem with, you know, people of color and poor people, you know, living together. And so there's this theory that if, uh, you know, basically, to put it very simply, that, you know, by deconcentrating, you know, the poverty that is dispersing poor people so that are concentrated in a, in a particular area, that we're automatically, you know, going to be improving, you know, people's lives, which when you really think about it, you know, it's this assumption that, you know, people of color need to live within a certain proximity, you know, of white people in order for our lives, you know, to be better. But I think what that does is that it absolutely, you know, it absolves, uh, you know, the system, it absolves people of the responsibility of thinking about, you know, what policies and practices are keeping, you know, people of color in, you know, in poverty. So let's talk about housing, let's talk about poverty, especially when you look at a state of Minnesota, mm -hmm. Where housing, I mean, you could pick any topic in Minnesota, housing, health, uh, economic prosperity, and it will be along racial lines, you know. So by saying that the, pro that, that the solution is integration, we're absolving people of the responsibility of addressing the racism issue, you know, the systemic racism that keeps poor people of color in poverty, and even people of color who are doing well are doing well, you know, in very, uh, under very challenging circumstances. I want to dig into this a little bit, and I, I'm going to come back to the audience, because this is one of the things I wanted to talk about. I mean, uh, part of my struggle with this exact question, though, is doesn't that segregation, doesn't the fact that, you know, we live in uh, more and more homogenous communities actually hurt everybody? I mean, doesn't it make it so that we all are sort of less than we could be? Well, I, well, I mean, in terms of, uh, I, I'm taking a lot of this probably from uh, uh, Bill Bishop, uh, who, who wrote about the big sort and some of these kinds of things, but the more and more that we live around, and whether that's people of color or uh, white wealthy people or whatever it is, just if we live in homogenized zones, then we only hear and see things that are like us, and uh, our world becomes smaller and we become less and less able to understand other people. Well, I mean, I'll say, I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's, there's probably some truth to that, but, but again, part of the challenge, right, with, with the conversation around the politics of integration, to use um, the term from the gentleman in the audience who I've never met before yeah. in my life, so, yeah. I, um, he, uh, is, is that there's, there's a power analysis over whose burden it is, so to speak, to integrate, right, or who's, who has the ability to live in an exclusive community of people who look like them, have um, similar uh, educational backgrounds, wealth backgrounds, potentially political views or otherwise, right, um, and and yet thrive under those circumstances, economically thrive at least under those circumstances, and who is, um, is I mean, this is one of the questions that I think we ask a lot is why is, instead of talking simply about how, how people of color might benefit from going to whiter, wealthier, or suburban places, why don't we ask the question of why is it that once a place, I mean, and, and once a place, to use example, of some of the inner suburbs like a Richfield or like a Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park, once those once those communities become X percent people of color, 
does disinvestment occur from those, from both public and private sector, right? Um, why is uh, this, when we see again this narrative of, oh, that's a problem, that's a segregated community, that community is a problem, begins to occur when it's people of color and not when it's, again, not when, not when it's a third ring suburb that is 90% white, let's say, right? Well, I mean, yes. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, I think, but, but, I mean, but I, I think it's just, uh, yes. I mean, I think that you're right. It's it's very complicated, though, in terms of trying to ferret out. Uh, there's economic opportunity. I don't think that there's anybody who wouldn't say that, you know, like, a diner is not a problem. It's just a different kind of problem. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, is integration something, though, that we should want as a goal? Should, and whether, you know, I, I understand the power dynamics that play into it, but, uh, you know, if, if you could somehow approach it from a different perspective, is, should that be a goal? I think, I mean, and I'll give... Uh... Doctor gets a chance to speak, but I think um, I think the problem I have with that is why, if we're trying to use integration as a way to solve, um, you know, to solve the poverty issue, instead of asking, you know, especially like in Minnesota, why is it that people of color are disproportionately poor? Then that is a problem because we are not addressing the real issue. The real issue is that the systemic racism that is happening. That you know that keeps people of color, you know, below, uh, you know, below a certain, you know, below a certain line and ensures that they're not, you know, that they're not faring well. And if integration is such a great thing, then we should also be desegregating, you know, white suburbs, right? Yeah. You know, and the other thing. I agree. Like, I mean, you know? potentially, like, uh, what if we, uh, has anybody proposed that? <laughs> that we just, you know. Uh, but I think the real issue. Like China every once in a while will just take 10 million people and like put them somewhere else. I mean. <laughs> Uh, does the Met Council have that power? Does anyone know? No, oh, you got a few folks in the room right here. So, so, um, I mean, I think I think some of what I mean, some of what's needed as well, right, is, is a definition of what integration is, right? Because if we if we if we define integration as being um, as being an actual challenge to the power dynamics inherent in race in this country and really in this world, then I think then we're having a very different conversation, right? right? Because the fact is, I mean, even look at, at, at communities um, where there are sort of, there is ethnic diversity. I mean, and, mm -hmm. I, and I know Nalima well enough, I'll cite the community she lives in Brooklyn Park, right? Um, you've had, this is a community that's, that's, that's now majority people of color, right? One of the couple of cities in the state that has majority people of color. When you look at who's, so that, that's in theory a, a fairly integrated community, 50-50 essentially, right? People of color, and that's not breaking down within the group mm -hmm, labeled mm -hmm. people of color who are of different ethnicities, right? Or national backgrounds. But, um, but when you look at who still has the bulk of power and decision-making in the city, you have an all-white male city council, for instance, right? Uh, and that's not to pick on Brooklyn Park. There's many other places um, where similar dynamics occur, right? But, but this is, and this is the layer that when we talk about systemic racism, it's sort of saying that what, what happens in places like that, and this is where the, the language, the politics of integration become problematic, right, is that the... the um, the narrative that says that the problem is that now Brooklyn Park, the, the part of Brooklyn Park that's majority people of color, is now segregated, as is becomes a a way to essentially place blame back on the residents of color, as opposed to saying, well, what is actually a city government in a city that's 50 plus percent people of color, entirely white men in office, and doing very little to engage those residents, doing very little to even conceptualize the assets that are the new community members to their community 
that could be invested in that could be included in decision making and planning um, for how they want their communities to look are instead seen as, oh, well, the problem is that we are now segregated and thus all these series of problems occur, right? So I think I'm just trying to like outline a, a specific example, not picking on Brooklyn Park, um, but I think it's one of the more blatant examples, in my opinion, in this region. And the only thing I, I'll add, because those were uh, great answers, is that um, you know there's there's nothing wrong with the end state of integration. I think mm -hmm. that there's no one would argue against that. It's the integrating that right. that uh, is the problem. Uh, the way we have chosen in the U.S. to try to achieve integration and then maintain integration is almost without fail to uh, direct or limit the housing choices of people of color so that uh, our definitions of integration are almost always a percentage of people of color that is at a level that won't trigger white intolerance and white flight. And so we embed white intolerance into the policies that we make and into our objectives. So if we could do it without doing that, that'd be great. Uh, and then the second thing is that this whole process, uh, and, and I think um, um, uh, both Owen and Alima said this, um, stigmatizes communities of color as uh, as a problem, and if if uh, because it's 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 the choices of people of color who are manipulated in these efforts to integrate. Okay, so there was uh, uh, another hand. Okay, so I can close with these. Uh, so. Are you going to just read one of my cards here? Uh, I'm just I'm curious on the unsubsidized affordable angle. I think it's like 57% of affordable housing is unsubsidized or something like that. You know, we see examples like Richfield and the Alden in downtown Minneapolis where they're up market, you know, they're getting renovated and, and then the rents go up. What are the actual like specific policy measures that you can take to incentivize the private market to uh, stop trying to move the rent up the scale. Um, you know, there is it tax credits or what is it in that realm to prevent that? Well, I mean, I think the automatic, you know, answer would be, um, you know, I mean, and for example, I mean, in Brooklyn Park, uh, first of all, I, I, I really detest the term naturally occurring affordable housing because, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of times the question is not being asked is why are these homes, you know, why are these apartments, whatever houses below market rate, you know, to begin with, because that mean that most probably means that people are living in very, you know, undesirable conditions. And that is why, you know, the homes, you know, those apartments are below market rate. But I think one uh, conversation having Brooklyn Park is how can we put in some public investment and tie the landlord to keep the rent at the same rate, you know, so that the apartments can get renovated and bring it up to a desirable standard, you know, but be able to, uh, to keep the rents, you know, at the same rate for probably, you know, the next, you know, 30 years, you know, or something like that. I mean, I think we can use a number of, of different uh, approaches, tax incentives to keep uh, rents at certain levels. Um, there, 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 there could be ways of, of uh, reducing or forgiving uh, property taxes. Uh, there might be low-cost uh, uh, loans uh, made available to help finance uh, housing that is kept uh, at affordable levels uh, rather than, than upgraded. So. Um, I, you know, I, I think we could we could be as as creative in trying to incentivize the maintenance of that stock as as in the creation of new stock. Okay, we have one over here. 
Hello. Um, I have like a really quick observation and a question. One is, I do like when I go running, and by that I mean jogging really slowly down the <laughs> way, I see like all these condos or just like all this development. And I'm just like, who can afford that? Like who? It, but there's so much of that new development. And then on the flip side, I live in Phillips, and I have landlords like Bassam Sabri, who's like predatory, who is taking advantage of, of immigrant communities and really and no one is holding him accountable. So it's this, just this weird system, right, where there's like no accountability on one end. And like, how can we support sort of asset control and like not predatory options for folks? But then on the other hand, there's all these choices for I don't know who uh, up and down the Midtown Greenway. Um. <laughs> so is the question how to build in more, more accountability? Is that, is it so, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. This is this is tough. Um, so I mean, I'm gonna jump in real quick. I yeah. mean, like for example, I um, I worked in housing in Minneapolis in a neighborhood in North Minneapolis um, for a long time. And for example, in Minneapolis is a city, for example that has some pretty good ordinances. Sometimes they don't really, you know, enforce them. Like I know when I worked in North Minneapolis, we were, I think there's an ordinance that can allow tenants to take over a landlord's property if it's not being maintained, etc. You know, now try getting the city council to do that. <laughs> you know, it's very, I mean, you know, Minneapolis is an example of a city that has very, some very good ordinances in the books, but it's very hard you know, to get them to, you know, to really enforce them. So this is actually, uh, and I'm sorry to do this sort of at the end, but uh, I promised Dr. Getz we would do like a case study. Uh, so, uh, okay, so I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but, you know, Minneapolis actually has uh, the, one of the biggest sort of affordable housing uh, things ever, uh, right, in terms of Heritage Park, the, the history of that, and... Um, and the Holman consent decree and these kinds of things. And I know you wrote, I think, like, you know, 20,000 pages about this because I was trying to do research on it. Um, and so uh, we should just say very quickly, so uh, to set the stage, uh, Heritage Park was a very large affordable housing uh, complex. And then there was a class action lawsuit around this issue that we've been talking about to some degree tonight of quote-unquote, concentrated poverty in one area. And so then uh, the, the city and the state were forced to uh, change that into something else, and they gave the folks a couple... Well, I'm, since your eyes are rolling that much, I'll just... If you want to take the story over from there, Dr. Getz. Um, yeah, they were forced to. They were the most willing defendants uh, that uh, a class action suit ever, uh, ever had. So... Uh, they, they uh, as a result of being sued and, and going to a consent decree, they received $100 million of subsidies from HUD to tear down uh, housing that they wanted torn down uh, to begin with and to build a mixed-income community that now uh, we call uh, Heritage Park on the north side. And so I guess, what's the outcome of that, I mean, in some ways, in terms of the people who lived there before, how, how it interacted with the community now? Do we know, I mean, uh, 20 years later, how the people who had been there are doing, how the community is doing? Uh, does, that, does that model that, that they use there work or not? Right. Uh, the answer is we don't know. 
We don't know what they're Such a good public doing. policy answer. Yeah, it uh, is. Uh, well, we don't know no, uh, because nobody's studied it. So uh, I looked at where they moved to immediately after uh, being mm -hmm. forced out of the of the housing, but no one's done a follow-up uh, you know, 10, 15 years afterwards. So we don't know where they are. We uh, um, and we don't really know um, how this has affected them uh, in a long term. I mean, one thing I will say is, um, and why you know we have a I have a big problem with the you know integration story. I mean, I know there's no research that's been done, but I know working in North uh, Minneapolis, I know anecdotally, you know, I think a lot of people moved to Mary's place to begin with. I know I've met families in Brooklyn Center who used to live, you know, in Heritage Park and moved. But I think one thing I want to talk about is, I mean, that's a classic example of what happens when the people who are most impacted are not at the table, because some of the things that the, that the mainstream, you know, uh, people who create the systems value and may not necessarily be the same uh, the same things that communities of color, ethnic communities value. Social capital is so important. I know when I have spoken to some of the people who live in Heritage Park, one of the big things they talk about that they lost is the social capital. The idea that there were families living there, there were some people who were living three generations there and were able to interdepend on each other for childcare. Grandma could watch the baby. I could go to mom's house for etc. But I think um, so. sometimes the way we... Um, the way we place, you know, the language that we use to describe people, okay, these are poor people, they need to move to better places, but what I talk about is what they lose. Uh, because to begin with, we don't value what they have because it doesn't look like what the mainstream community has. So we don't value what they have to begin with, and we don't ask them, how is this going to impact you? What do you value? You know, and why are you living together to begin with? That is an amazing note to end on. Ladies and gentlemen, can we do a big round of applause for uh, all three of our guests, Dr. Ed Gatz, Owen Duckworth. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.